0: DW. Inside Europe.
1: Hello, and welcome to our very first show of 2024. With European parliamentary elections looming in June and various other important national and regional elections in the offing, there is a lot at stake. So stay tuned as we get country-specific briefings from a selection of our correspondents in different European capitals and talk to Sarah Wheaton, brand new host of Politico's EU Confidential podcast. All that plus an introduction to one of Europe's 2024 capitals of culture, Buda in Norway.
0: The whole uh, initiative for the capital culture project comes from the fact that the NATO base is moving away from the city was decided in 2012. And we're trying to find a new identity.
1: 2024 is set to be the biggest election year in history. Globally, some 76 countries are scheduled to hold elections in which all voters have the chance to cast a ballot. And that includes big players like the USA, Russia and India. In Europe, European parliamentary elections in June, together with a whole swathe of significant national and regional elections throughout the year, are expected to significantly realign the political status quo of the continent. It's a dizzying prospect, but DW's correspondents in the capitals are here to guide us through. Let's start with Terry Schultz in Brussels. <laughs>
2: Every five years, there's the possibility of a political shift in the European Union, and 2024 could bring a big one. In June, more than 400 million eligible voters across all 27 member states will be electing their delegates to make the law that governs the bloc. There are already projections out on how these elections will go based on political trends in member states. A shift to the right in national elections is likely to show up in the parliamentary elections as well. The shock victory of the far-right anti-immigration freedom party in the Netherlands in November has given hope to the far-right that it's going to pick up seats in June. That group is currently only the sixth largest in the European Parliament, but polling indicates it could move up to fourth. The center-right European People's Party and the Socialists are expected to remain the largest political groups, but liberals and greens are expected to lose seats. This, of course, will also depend on turnout, which fell consistently since 1979 until the last election. In 2019, there was an increase up to 51% of eligible voters. There's huge concern about the role disinformation and foreign interference may play in this vote, especially with two wars and emotions raging. With false narratives already showing up across the entire block, facts may turn out to be the biggest loser in this election.
3: I'm Dan Ashby in the UK, where voters should be going to the polls by the end of the year. And it's a big one, because as it stands, most of the polls indicate that the ruling party's 14 years in power will come to an end. The problem the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has is the economy. It remains the dominant issue for voters, and millions are still feeling the cost of living crisis. An Ipsos Mori poll revealed that more than 80% of people are Dissatisfied with the way the government is running the country. Meanwhile, for the best part of a year, the opposition Labour Party has been between 15 and 20% ahead in the polls, with one expert warning that the Conservative Party could be demolished to just 130 seats. Why could that be significant? Well, In the short term, it would herald a big change in direction and power. The left-leaning Labour Party are seen as more environmental and potentially more warm towards Europe, though they have said they would not reverse Brexit. But, and there are a series of buts here... The opposition Labour Party's leader, Keir Starmer, still doesn't poll that well himself. And we have seen these crazy swings in recent years as things like Brexit come out in the wash. So it's all still to play for. And the question is, if the Conservatives talk about so-called culture war issues like immigration, will people simply identify with the Conservatives and stick with them? In short, they say a day is a long time in politics. The election is still likely 10 months away. And everything I've just told you could all change in an instant. I'm Nick Martin. Austria
4: doesn't go to the polls until the autumn, which gives traditional parties plenty of time to counter the resurgence of the far-right Freedom Party of Austria, or FPÖ. And they'll need to In polls, the FPÖ is currently by far the most popular party in the Alpine nation, with 30% support. Six points ahead of the opposition Social Democrats and nine points ahead of the centre-right Austrian People's Party, which leads the current coalition. It's themes that voters have forgotten about the Ibiza affair four years ago that brought down the coalition government that included the FPO. Its party leader and then-vice-chancellor, Heinz-Christian Stracker, was forced to resign after he and a colleague were caught on a secretly recorded video discussing the party's underhanded practices and intentions during a meeting with a Russian businesswoman on the Spanish island. But with immigration on the rise once again, Russia's war against Ukraine causing economic uncertainties and the FPO using the Covid pandemic as a chance to pitch itself as the truly free party, its support has once again surged. While traditional parties in other EU states often refuse to work with far-right parties, the FPO has been part of two previous coalitions. And with almost a third of voters currently backing their policies, their rivals will struggle to keep them out of power this time.
5: I'm Thomas Sparrow in Berlin, and this year I'll be particularly following what is being described as a potential political earthquake here in Germany. Three regional elections in the east of the country in September, in Brandenburg, Saxony and Thuringia, where the far-right party, AFD, could actually finish in first place. This has never happened before, but the AFD has gained so much in regional and national polls that experts are not discarding that possibility – In all three regions, the AFD has around 30% support. It's not guaranteed that the AFD would lead those regions, even if they did end in first place. Coalitions are nearly always needed here in Germany, and no other democratic party has openly indicated they would work together with the AFD. And a lot can happen until September. There have often been internal squabbles within the party, there could also be new competition from a new far-left political group that's being founded. Then there's the issue of extremism, which could turn into a political problem for the party. In Saxony and Thuringia, the local domestic intelligence agency has said the regional party branch is definitely far-right extremists, essentially pursuing anti-constitutional goals. And it's also unclear whether bigger parties, such as the conservative CDU, could also take votes away from the AfD. But even with these open questions, it's clear that 2024 will be marked by these regional elections and whether the AFD manages to shock Germany's political landscape.
1: Our very own Thomas Sparrow in Berlin there. As you will have gathered by now, this is potentially a year of existential reckoning for Europe with so much at stake from the fate of Ukraine to environmental policy, migration and of course the far right's attempt at reshaping the continent in its own image. In order to explore some of the issues in more detail, I invited Sarah Wheaton, the host of Politico's EU Confidential podcast, to join me for a chat about the year ahead. Now, Sarah's only a few weeks into the EU confidential job, having taken over from Suzanne Lynch at the beginning of December. What a time to be taking over.
6: Yes, well, thank you for giving me the plug, but um, it's a perfect slash... Terrifying time in the news industry. You know we want a lot of different stories, but it's a bit overwhelming right now. Even with my brief just in Brussels, we're preparing for a you know an unusually unpredictable European election in June of 2024. We're still dealing with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine uh, with exceptional breaks in European unity, uh, as well as as a major test for Ukraine and Washington. So looking at a potential major change in that landscape. And then, of course, the Israel-Hamas war um, could very well spill over onto the continent. So a lot going on. My sense is that not really since the Eurozone crisis have things been so
1: up in the air. Wow, there's a lot to take in there. Look, Sarah, maybe you could just help me out. And zooming in on the European elections element, just give me a sort of European elections 101. How do they work exactly? So the European elections
6: will be held over four days in June. And each of the EU 27 member countries will hold national level elections for the European Parliament, and so, and that's one of the things that makes it complicated for us as journalists to write about it, and also sometimes complicated for uh, European citizens to kind of understand the outcome. So, so the national political parties will will put forward candidates, and they will run, um, and then those people will become members of the European Parliament, and then. Theoretically, there's this idea where one person from each of the major political parties would kind of run as the lead candidate, you know, the sort of equivalent of a prime minister candidate or a presidential candidate. Um, We call this uh, the Spitzenkandidat. And the idea is that the the party that wins the the majority would get to that their Spitzenkandidat would then become the president of the European Commission. But ultimately, uh, it didn't work out that way last time. In the end, uh, national leaders have a lot of say over who gets the job. And so that's how we ended up with Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who did not even run for the European
1: Parliament. That's really interesting. Okay, so we've got these sort of teams, effectively, sort of assembling. Um, And then um, the coalitions within the actual Parliament itself that then sort of build up to these blocks. And what we're looking at potentially is a shift in the balance of power within the Parliament itself. Exactly, so Theoretically, these teams
6: align pretty much with what we might see um, in in a lot of major countries as far as their national politics. So you have the center-right European People's Party. They're aligned with uh, the CDU in Germany, Christian Democratic Party. Then we have um, the Socialists and Democrats group in the European Parliament. They're a center-left. And then there's a a sort of centrist or economic liberal group uh, that's currently known as Renew. And these three groups, they're all pro-European groups. They have all historically kind of created a grand coalition in the European Parliament, and they really see themselves as a a bulwark against not just more extreme ideological parties, but also against uh, Euroskeptic uh, elements in Europe. And so most likely, most of the projections that we see show that this would still be the most logical coalition. But we are seeing things get more ideological, especially with many of the climate policies. We're seeing even center-right parties show more resistance to some of those climate policies. At the same time, we're seeing a rise of far-right, nationalist, populist groups. And there's a lot of wondering if it would make sense actually Instead of participating in this grand coalition, instead for the center-right, for the European People's Party, to team up with some of the right-wing groups um, in the European Parliament, those include the sort of traditional to far-right European conservatives and reformists, and the nationalist identity and democracy group. And um, Politico just had an interesting analysis. And they showed that if the election were held today, this far-right nationalist group Identity and Democracy would be the third biggest group in the European Parliament. They would displace the central economic liberals group, Renew Europe. So that certainly is getting a lot of attention in Brussels. But at the same time, people think that this might happen every cycle. And there's a lot of kind of lighting on fire of the hair and that sort of thing, and then ultimately the political dynamics stay more or less the same in the end. But you know, but for right now, it's um, it's definitely something people are paying close attention to. And things like here at Wilder's um, first place finish in the Netherlands is really that's really fueling people's concerns about these potential changes.
1: And what about the safety of the European elections themselves, Sarah? I know that Politico has um, published recently on this issue and the findings were not particularly reassuring.
6: Right. Well, the European Parliament itself, elections notwithstanding just the actual functioning of the Parliament, was revealed to be very insecure when it comes to cybersecurity. And the Commission, uh, one of their last acts in December, put out a proposal called the Defense of Democracy Act, and that had several different elements. And a big one, the most kind of Politically sensitive one is uh, targeted at fighting foreign interference from places like Moscow and beijing there 's a lot of concern about putting forward a lot of misinformation, whether it 's you know using using algorithms on social media or doing other things to disrupt the the democratic process and so there 's now a push in the European Union to make all lobbyists and other advocates working on behalf of third countries or even funded by third countries to have to reveal that in a transparency register. Um, at the same time, the commission did put out um, a series of, of recommendations regarding cybersecurity for elections that would be for each of the EU 27 countries to follow. But ultimately, as I said, you know, these are, there are 27 different elections uh, that make up what we call the European Parliament elections in June 2024. And it's up to each country to ensure the safety of their own election. And so um, I hate to use a cliche, but ultimately the vote will only be as strong as its weakest link.
1: On that slightly queasy note, um, I'm not going to ask you for your predictions for 2024 because that would be mean. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you could just give me a sense of some of the things that will be on your radar as we head into the new year?
6: So we do have some more elections coming up. Uh, in January, there'll be the Finnish presidential election. There will also be March elections in, in Portugal, as well as um, votes in Lithuania prior to the European Parliament elections. So uh, the number crunchers are going to be really digging into those results to see what happens. And then, uh, of course, outside of Europe um, and beyond June, uh, uh, you can hear from my accent that I'm I'm American. Um, you know, everybody in Europe is watching what will happen in the U.S. presidential election to see if Trump once again returns to the White House. Uh, we can certainly expect major changes in the transatlantic relationship, um, major changes in the approach towards Ukraine, major changes in NATO, uh, major changes in just the stability of a country that has historically been the global policeman, depending on the
1: results of that vote. That was my conversation with Sarah Wheaton, host of Politico's EU Confidential podcast, a must-listen from the heart of the Brussels bubble. A quick plug for our own podcast at this point. We are available on all the usual platforms, and that includes YouTube via DW's new podcast channel. Just type DW Podcasts into the YouTube search bar. We are, of course, as always, grateful for your likes, comments and reviews since they are the things that really do help other listeners to find us. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Is a cultural first for Europe in 2024. For the first time ever, an Arctic city gets to be European capital of culture. Buda in northern Norway may have a population of only 50,000 people, but it is about to be put firmly on the map. And as Laj Bavanga reports, the Culture Capital Programme has a strong focus on both the Arctic region's natural splendour and on its indigenous Sami culture and history.
7: Music by Sami composer Frode Fjellheim. This is from the theatre piece Alak, a tale of climate change and indigenous populations. It marries two of the central themes of Buddha's European Capital of Culture programme nature and Sami tradition and culture.
8: Our stories, the native side of the history, so I think it was very important for us to tell our story.
7: Cecilia Persson is the writer of the Alak Theatre piece. She too is Sami. Alak tells the story of what would happen to Arctic indigenous peoples and their culture if climate change is not stopped.
8: The greenhouse effect is very visible in the Arctic already now, and it has been for quite some time now. The story starts after the greenhouse effect have uh, burned these Arctic uh, areas. So where, are, what are we going to live from then? We cannot eat oil.
0: European Capital of Culture for 2024 goes to Buda. Ah!
7: This being the Arctic, light and darkness play a central part in people's lives with no sunshine for much of the winter and the midnight sun in summer. These distinct seasons have very much informed the programme, explains Head of Programming Henrik Sandagfinrud.
0: Early February we get the sun back in the city and uh, this creates this optimistic hard-working uh, mood. We want to start a program by taking a lot of risk and showing that you should be able to produce outdoors even in, Arctic, in the Arctic region. The equinox when we get to March sets the tone for another season from the end of uh, May and through June. The sun doesn't set at all. And as the sun sets again uh, and the storms start rolling in, we think that's the time to talk about drama and friction and um, freedom of expression and democracy through the autumn. And then at the very end, when the sun goes behind the mountains in the east, we think it's a good opportunity to talk about perspective and nuances and maybe creating some reflections on what has happened. <laughs>
7: For Bude, being chosen the European capital of culture means far more than getting the chance to showcase rich cultural offerings. An important NATO airbase closed in 2022, and the entire Nuland region has not experienced any population growth for more than 50 years, explains Henrik sands The region of Nuland is
0: 243,000 people, which is the exact same number as in 1968. Combining that with uh, an aging population is a big demographic challenge. The whole uh, initiative for the Capital Culture Project comes from the fact that the NATO base is moving away from the city, was decided in 2012, and we're trying to find a new identity. Everything will be presented against the backdrop of our wild and untamed nature, creating a spectacular setting.
7: Judging from the programme, which so far features more than a thousand events, that identity should not be too hard to shape.
0: The diversity and multitude of events and program is the big star. We're not doing a lot of big culturally industrial events. We do a big opening on February 3rd, but the main part of the programme is smaller-scale cultural events – this topic of being in nature, both around the city and uh, and into the mountains and uh, along the fjords, that's a big topic.
7: In a place like this, you simply cannot escape nature. And people in this part of Norway have lived in peace with it for thousands of years, explains Cecilia Persson, the writer of the theatre piece Alak.
8: In the north, I would say the nature is the culture. Uh, the nature houses the culture. You cannot conquer the nature. Uh, you cannot conquer the sea. You have to play on the team to the strong ones. This will
7: be Northern Norway's largest cultural project ever. Around 20,000 people are expected to attend the opening event on the 3rd of February, which will take place on a floating stage in Buddha's Harbor, all broadcast live on Norwegian TV. But being capital of culture is a year-long honour, underlines Head of Programming, Henrik Sand Dagfinrud.
0: The highlight here is the fact that you can come to Buda almost whenever you want, and we should be able to combine a natural experience with an artistic experience.
7: Lars DW.
1: Now, what's the Sami for vandalist, I wonder, or the Norwegian? I'll take either answer. If you know, our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Do also please reach out if you have ideas for stories you'd like to hear us cover in the coming year. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock in Germany. Now, can you hear this? That is the sound of me leafing through my passport, my British passport, that is, because I'm actually lucky enough to have two. My German passport sounds like this. Yeah, they sound the same, don't they? But the thing is, they don't actually feel the same. I think there's probably something very personal about a passport. And when I took on German citizenship uh, shortly before Brexit, I actually did quite a lot of soul searching about who I understood myself to be, where I saw my future as being, where I wanted to vote and so on and so on. So maybe that is why my ears immediately pricked up when I heard that our colleagues over at DW's Don't Drink the Milk podcast were doing an episode on passports. Could we borrow it, I asked. Sure, they said. We're all for freedom of movement within the designated DW zone.
9: The no, don't drink the hey, I'm Rachel Stewart and this is Don't Drink the Milk, the podcast where we take you to different corners of Europe, tracing the unexpected backstories of everyday things, things you've probably never stopped to question before, like that little booklet we carry around to prove who we are. Sometimes it opens doors, sometimes it means the door gets shut in our face. So, I'm British, but I've been living in Germany for seven years. And just before I made the move in 2016, this happened.
1: This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union.
9: That's definitely not how I reacted to the results. Luckily, Brexit didn't ruin my plans to move abroad. But it did make me question a few things about my passport and my identity. Did I feel more British or European? Should I try and get a German passport? And if I did, would I suddenly feel German? Our producer, Charlie, she's Australian. Her passport has a kangaroo on the front. No joke. And she's been digging into how and why the passport came to be in the first place. Because it didn't always exist, right?
10: I've been taken through a back door behind the counter at a big old library down several flights of stairs into the belly of an archive. Here, in rows upon rows of green shelves, the United Nations stores hundreds of books. But that's not what I'm here for. I've come to meet someone who works in the archives, Ermine de Bolt. And upstairs, she has something to show me.
11: It's a blue document. We have the coat of arms and um, the name of the country.
10: Uruguay. This little blue document is one of the first ever versions of the passports we know today. It's about 100 years old. So, yeah, actually not that old. Not so long, (laughs) you know. Eramine and I are not in Uruguay, though. We're sitting in a very high-ceilinged room at one of the old wooden desks on the top floor of the United Nations Library and Archives in Geneva, Switzerland. There's a reason this old passport lives here – Geneva used to be the home of the League of Nations, the predecessor of the United Nations. Around the time the League was founded, in the early 20th century, a lot of things were going on that helped pave the way for the passport. Empires crumbled, new nation-states were born, people were no longer subjects of their rulers, but citizens of their nations. Plus, as things like air travel evolved, people were crossing borders way more often and way faster than before. Another big factor was war.
11: Because before 1914 and before the First World War, uh, no passport was needed to travel from one country to another.
10: But during the First World War, countries like Germany, France, the UK and Italy, they, perhaps unsurprisingly, started insisting that people from enemy countries needed official identification documents to enter their territories. Other so-called neutral states like Denmark, Spain and Switzerland, they were basically forced to follow suit. But when it came to the documents governments were handing out, everyone was kind of doing their own thing.
11: The border officials suddenly were uh, confronted with a lot of different travel documents, with different shapes, different size. And it was hard to know if the passport was authentic or not.
10: So they really needed to
11: find a solution.
10: And a solution they did find. The League of Nations gathered world leaders in 1920 in Paris at the succinctly named Conference on Passports, Custom Formalities and Through Tickets. And thusly, it was official. Passports everywhere should look a certain way and include the same kind of information. The
11: shape of a booklet, measuring uh, 15 dot- 5 cm for 10.5 centimetres, 32 pages. French has to be used in combination with another language. And the front cover of the document has to bear the country's name and the coat of arms.
10: But then Ermin tells me something odd, something I wasn't expecting.
11: The governments wanted to go back to the situation before the
10: war Yes. the idea was to abolish the passports. A lot of world leaders preferred things the way they were before, when people could move around freely without carrying around this little booklet. It was also super unpopular with the public and with the press. People thought passports undermined their freedom, invaded their privacy, and were, like, kind of annoying.
3: The New York Times, October 24th.
1: 1926, the passport nuisance. Must passports be retained as a permanent feature of travel? The system in vogue since the war is cumbersome, vexatious, and a drag on free intercourse between nations.
11: But it was too late to go back to this freedom of movement. They realized it was too hard.
10: Sometimes barriers are easier to build than they are to take down. League of Nations members couldn't agree on what a world without border controls and without the passport would look like, on how they would uphold national security if people were allowed to get around freely like they did before. And so the
9: passport was here to stay. That's where the story began, but the passport has been on quite a journey since then. And so have we. Quite unexpectedly, the story took us to
10: a law firm, a hair salon and a flour mill in North Macedonia. If you're not familiar with it, it's a small country of around two million people nestled
9: in the Balkan peninsula just north of Greece. But first up, we wanted to know how the meaning of the passport has changed. What's its purpose and what does it symbolise?
11: I think it's who you are uh, outside your own country more than what you are inside. It's just a uh, paper. That help us to travel around there, but that's all.
12: It is my identity. It's something that I am proud to have, to show that I'm Irish.
10: Identity. Not just in the ID sense, but in the who am I sense. One way to see the passport could be as a kind of membership card to a club. Like a shared history, a shared culture, maybe a shared language. But sometimes national identity isn't so clear-cut. Like when different rulers come and go, or borders shift... Which brings us to the first reason we ended up in North Macedonia.
13: As far as I remember, I have at least one guest from Spain. Can I use you to help make my, my point?
9: We've joined a walking tour in the capital city, Scorpio. Our tour guide Zoran is quite the joker, and he's got a little anecdote for us. So this one time...
13: I was in Barcelona. On a beautiful day, I end up in La Bucaria looking for refreshment, and I'm seeing those pots with fruit salads, and on the top of one, big capital letters,
9: Macedonia. In Spain, that's what they call this fruit salad, Macedonia. But something was wrong. There was bananas and kiwis in the salad. This is
13: not right. I turned around, went back to the market, asking for explanation. Why you call this one Macedonia? I am from Macedonia, trust me, no bananas. (laughs) I love the girl. She said, oh, sir, don't worry. It's not about what type of fruit we put inside. As long as there is a nice mix of fruit you're going to call it Macedonia?
9: And I was like, yeah,
13: that's what we are, a nice mix of everything.
9: (laughs) This nice mix of everything country has been part of numerous empires and kingdoms over the past few thousand years. Roman, Byzantine, Bulgarian, Ottoman, Serbian, and each one of those rulers left a lasting mark on the culture. As we explore the old bazaar, Zoran points out all the little reminders of this complex history.
13: First of all, you're going to end up hearing people speaking different languages, Macedonian, Albanian, Turkish. You're going to see people from different ethnic and religious groups and different architectural styles. And maybe the best part of the story, oh, you're going to enjoy the flavor that come from all these small restaurants around of typical Macedonian or Turkish types of food and drinks.
9: Sure enough, as we walk past the distinctive domes of an Orthodox church, the Muslim call to prayer starts up from a nearby mosque. We see tavca gravca, a typical Macedonian dish, bubbling away in clay pots. Then rows of tempting Turkish baklava sweets. Then Balkan classics like the delicious flaky cheesy pastry burek.
13: I'm always joking that the Ottomans stayed in Macedonia 520 years, not because we were not able to chase them away. It's simply local people, they've been afraid. If you chase the Ottomans,
9: they might take the burek with them. <laughs> no problem, stay as long as you like. But there's another piece of the fruit salad we haven't even mentioned yet. Yugoslavia The Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia existed from just after the Second World War until the early 1990s. It was made up of six constituent republics, including what is now North Macedonia. Ah, about the name. The Republic of North Macedonia has technically only existed since 2019. When the country declared independence from Yugoslavia back in 1991, it was just called the Republic of Macedonia but now they want to be part of the European Union. In order to settle a dispute with another EU country, Greece, they had to add North to their name. After nearly 20 years of trying, they still haven't actually made it into the EU. But if they eventually do, this would surely mean another cultural shift and a new kind of passport. See what we meant by complicated national identity?
13: OK, let's go to the drinking
9: section. Zoran leaves us with a few insider tips, like never drink your rakia as a shot, because that stuff is potent. I wish we'd learnt that earlier.
10: So, remember those people we heard from before, telling us what their passport means to them? Those were actually tourists we met in Scorpia. And in most people's answers there was a running theme.
3: Liberty. A lot of freedom. A
10: ticket to freedom.
9: To travel the world. To
10: travel, you know, uh, where you want to go, to visit other countries. My passport, for me, is my freedom.
9: Which is kind of funny now that we know that people a hundred years ago thought the opposite, that it was restricting their freedom. Well, we should mention that all those people we just heard from, they all have pretty powerful passports. Australian passport.
11: It's
3: a Belgian passport. We are from Brazil. We are from Spain, but we live in Berlin. We are from Austria. We are from Austria. Austria.
9: (laughs) Because not all passports are created equal. Nuh-uh. And
10: what better way to illustrate this than with a little round of the Wheel of Fortune Passport Edition. Rachel, are you ready to play? I'm ready. Okay, so every year passport indexes are released, ranking passports from first to last based on how many other countries can be visited visa-free by a holder of said passport. Or with visa on arrival, which is basically just a formality. So according to the current Global Passport Power Rank, 2023, the number one spot is held by the United Arab Emirates. And at the bottom, that's Afghanistan. Hmm. So in this game, we'll hear a few random country names, and then you're going to guess that country's ranking in this passport index. There are a lot of countries tied in each position, so the scale only runs from 1 to 93. Ah, OK, got it. All right, let's hear what's up first.
9: India. Mm, I'm going to say somewhere in the 60s, maybe 63? 67. Ah, so close. Very close. OK, next country. Nigeria. Mm. Probably somewhere around... 48. the way around,
10: 84.
9: Oh, wow. <laughs>
10: <laughs> Tying with Iran and Kosovo. I really thought
9: that would be better. Okay, and we have one more. The United States of America. I think it's going to be worse than we expect, so I'm going to say 16. Well, it's actually number five. Oh, wow. It ties with four
10: other countries, Malta, Lithuania, Slovakia and Australia in fifth position on the Global Passport Power Rank. But wait, what about being without passports or citizenship?
9: For a surprising number of people in the world, they're stateless. This often affects people who are discriminated against because of their ethnicity or religion. It can also be caused by changing national borders or contested nation-states, like Taiwan. Today, there are an estimated 10 million stateless people around the world. And back in North Macedonia, we met
10: someone who knows exactly how hard it is to be in this situation. Welcome, hi, thank you so much. Nice to meet you, yeah, lovely to meet you. Yes, yes. I'm Charlie. But don't worry, this story does end well because when we met Valentin, he'd just received his first ever official ID. <laughs>
13: I'm really
14: happy because uh, for the first time I feel uh, like I'm legally uh, visible in the country, in the system, because for 21 years I didn't have any document. Valentin's lawyer, Alexandra,
10: is doing the translating here. She says that there are two main causes for statelessness in North Macedonia.
14: First one is historical, and it is related to the dissolution of former Yugoslavia. Back then, a certain number of people who originated from other countries that were part of uh, Yugoslavia didn't register neither in Macedonian citizenship nor in the citizenship of of the country they originated from.
10: There are some communities that are disproportionately affected, like poorer communities, people with less education... And socially marginalised groups, like the Roma population, which is a traditionally nomadic ethnic group in Eastern Europe. Statelessness then got passed on to their children and their grandchildren.
14: Uh, this is the first causes, cause of statelessness, and the other is uh, administrative barriers in the birth registration procedure.
10: That's what happened in Valentin's case. Until now, he's been stateless all his life simply because his parents didn't register his or his sibling's birth within the 42-day limit set in North Macedonia. His mother was Serbian and later abandoned them, and his father died. He never got a birth certificate, and so no citizenship. Without it, he struggled to access health care, he couldn't go to school.
14: I felt like I didn't exist. No one deserves to be left out from the system.
10: Valentin's 12-year legal battle for official recognition has paid off. And in recent years, North Macedonia has taken some important legal steps to fix these issues, to try and make sure everyone gets citizenship. So, Alexandra is feeling pretty optimistic these days.
14: Now I feel that uh, we we have capacity, we have uh, political will to solve these cases and to maybe to become first country in uh, Europe that solved this problem.
10: Why not? But you know what? Statelessness is nothing new. It emerged around the same time the passport did, post-World War I, alongside disappearing empires and new nation-states. Nowadays, there's this other side to citizenship too. It's more like a game, wheeling and dealing. Because it turns out, most countries do bend their own citizenship rules from time to time. If they see someone as valuable enough. You can buy your way into some countries. It's called citizenship by investment,
9: aka the golden passport.
10: It's not cheap, though. It usually costs the equivalent of 500,000 to 1 million US dollars. Malta, Montenegro, Austria, Jordan, around 30 countries offer this kind of deal. One of the trailblazers back in 2006 was the Caribbean island nation of St Kitts and Nevis. But who exactly is forking out for these golden passports? People who have bad
15: passports to begin with. People who want to be a lot more mobile than they are and who are constantly being hampered by the colour of their passport. Right now, it's really
10: not great to be Russian, you know, in the world. So mostly people who have a low-ranking passport and plenty of cash. Yes, <laughs>
15: Freedom isn't free, as the Americans like to say.
10: <laughs> Meet Etusa Araxia Abrahamian. She's a journalist and the author of Cosmopolites, a book on the global market for citizenship. Guess which country is one of the most recent to start offering
9: citizenship by investment? North Macedonia. There are two main ways of buying your way into North Macedonia. You can either donate about 200,000 US dollars to a government fund. Or you can invest just over $400,000 in a business in the country. It has to employ at least 10 people and be up and running for at least one year. So the country gets something out of it. But what the investor gets out of it is not so clear. The North Macedonian passport doesn't really get you very far. It's not an especially wealthy country. And many North Macedonians are actually trying their luck getting passports elsewhere.
15: If you are trying to sell a North Macedonia passport, you're not... Maybe pitching to the creme de la creme, you know? (laughs) Uh, I think that if your instinct is, why would anyone want to be a citizen of this country? No offense to the country or its citizens, purely on the passport power. um, There might be something else
10: going on. Local journalists here were suspicious of these new North
12: Macedonian citizens, too.
10: Anna Petruseva is an investigative journalist from the Balkan Investigative Reporter Network.
12: We managed to find an example of a U.S. citizen who had been working in the States, mostly in the casino business. But In
10: 2018, the controversial casino investor Sean Andre Scott founded a company in North Macedonia's
9: capital, Scorpia.
12: Set up a hair salon, employed a bunch of people. Ah, yeah,
9: the hair salon.
12: Seeing as we came
9: all the way to Scorpia and stumbled across this strange story we couldn't not go and see it for ourselves. Yep, there it is down there. Uh, Yeah, Charm Beauty Salon. Okay, so we're right in the center of Scorpia, down a little side street. It's really small. They have hair and makeup, depilation, massage and nails on offer. And someone is actually currently getting their hair cut, so it is in operation. Hi.
10: Hi. Do you speak English? Yes. Okay. My name's Charlie. Okay. We explain why we've barged into the salon. And she tells us that Scott has already moved on. No,
13: uh, I'm um, new here.
9: I'm working here alone. Do you own the whole... (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I'm just you alone. Yes. Wow.
10: Hmm. So it seems the 10 jobs that were supposedly created didn't last long. I did actually really need a haircut. But at that moment, her next customer arrives, so we leave them to it.
9: Yeah, (laughs) take care. Yeah, you too. Thank
10: you. Anna confirms that 18 months after opening the salon, Scott left and withdrew some of his investment. Her and her team didn't find any evidence that he'd been involved in illegal activities.
12: But what was peculiar that this person, before obtaining a Macedonian passport, he obtained a Bulgarian passport and had various investments and dealings in Bulgaria as well which also raises the question why why would um, anyone need that and uh, on one hand you could hear explanations that it could be making it easier for them to deal in these countries on the other hand you could also hear explanations from experts that it would be also say useful if there are any kind of warrants or extradition requests because different countries have have different regulations in that matter.
10: Citizenship by investment has been linked to some shady deals and shady people around the world. It's also not just wealthy individuals who've made the most of this option, but entire countries too.
15: The UAE and the Comoro Islands were involved in, in a really weird passport scheme, where, wherein the UAE bought passports in bulk from the Comoro Islands to document people in their country, who are stateless, who UAE did not want to document with UAE passports.
10: Matoosa discovered that in 2008, the United Arab Emirates decided to deal with the issue of their own stateless population by buying them passports to another country. They bought around 50,000 passports to a tiny island nation off the coast of East Africa. The Comoros government did get in trouble for doing this, and their president from back then is actually now in jail. And the country never even saw most of the money promised for this scheme. It's still a mystery as to whose pockets those hundreds of millions of dollars went into.
9: But as for the country that bought the passports...
15: No, the UAE has faced absolutely no repercussions. Um, barely a peep from the humanitarian world. Uh, Human Rights Watch,
10: I think, put out, put out a statement, but no, absolutely nothing. The way Atusa sees it, the whole system of citizenship is outdated and unjust, and basically needs a shake-up.
15: It's really a 20th century, even 19th, 20th century system, right, that was forged through massive wars and reacting to them. And I think it certainly seems like we need something new for the next century, but I'm not hopeful that we're going to come up with one. But this all boils down to the kind of same root cause, and that's that people are... Routinely discriminated against based on on where they're coming from, you don 't choose where you 're born you don't choose your nationality you don 't choose you certainly don't choose your parents, and yet our whole architecture of the world is designed as if it is someone 's fault that they're born in a certain place and so if people are equal and free, uh, we should start treating them like it and I think a good place to start is passports and visa regimes and You know, making migration a little freer.
9: Woo! Okay, we're gonna do it the Macedonian way and have our proper breakfast. I would eat this every day if I was here.
10: Sitting at that bustling Macedonian bakery, trying to blend in with the locals, eating our yogurt and delicious cheesy pastries. We were thinking, what a shame it was that we didn't have $400,000
9: to spare. It would be so nice to stay. But there was one much more affordable way that we could get our hands on a passport. We've driven three hours southwest of Scorpio, almost to the Albanian border, to the little village of Veftjani. It's a hilly town lined with traditional old stone houses with cute little balconies. One of the first things we see is a throwback to Yugoslavian times. Yeah, I like
4: it. <laughs> yeah, it's very small. It's nice car. The Zastava
9: 750 car, nicknamed the Feature. We ask around for some directions.
0: Six hundred meters. Okay. Meter. okay, great. okay.
9: And set off uphill. You can come with us. Come with Soon enough, we get to a stream—a stream with a story. In 1987, plans were made to redirect the water away from this community, apparently to provide water for houses being built by the rich elite. The Vevčani villagers rebelled, ending up in a violent standoff with police. This unusual example of resistance in communist Yugoslavia became known as the Vevčani Emergency. It lasted several months, but in the end, the villagers won and their rebellious reputation was sealed. A few years later, Macedonia declared independence from Yugoslavia. But for the Vefjani locals, that wasn't enough. They held their own referendum and voted overwhelmingly to become an independent republic. It was never formally recognised, but they were eventually granted their own separate municipality. You can find many places like Vefjani all around the world. They're often referred to as micronations, the idea of the Republic of Vefchani lost momentum over the years, until the early two thousands, when locals decided to revive it as a tourist gimmick. They printed their own currency, the Lichnik, which means beautiful in the local dialect, and they made their own passports. We found the passport So, the Republic of Vefchani. Yes. So how much to buy?
12: 150
7: dinners.
9: We'll get two passports and some money, please. (gasps) We're
4: getting a stamp. Special. Special.
9: Now we are the proud owners of Vefchani Passports, emblazoned with the crest of the village and validated with a stamp.
1: That episode of Don't Drink the Milk was written and produced by Charlie Shield and Rachel Stewart. It was edited by Sam Baker. Additional help was provided by Rainer Breuer, Katharina Abel and Julia Rose. Sound design was by Nico Maas, final mix by Philipp Rabenstein and additional help from Chris Kaola. Our little team here at Inside Europe was Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and our sound engineer was Lars Schlemmer. Our feedback address is, as always, insideeurope at dw.com. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.